Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. The first battle of the war at Fort Sumter ended with the surrender ceremony. The war in Virginia ended, for the most part, at Appomattox with the surrender ceremony. In between, hundreds of thousands of Civil War soldiers surrendered, either en masse at places like Fort Donelson or Harper's Ferry, or as individuals on the battlefield to be listed as captured or missing in after-action reports. Curiously, no historian has ever looked systematically at the phenomenon of surrendering, how it worked and what it meant, until Professor David Silkenat addressed it in Raising the White Flag, How Surrender Defined the American Civil War. We'll talk with the author tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath. Emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Annex on Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina, just a few miles away from the campus of East Carolina University, where I spend my days, but not speaking for them at night, uh, just for myself, and I know my guest will likewise speak only for himself as we plunge forward into the era of the American Civil War. I am happy to be here. Uh, Last week was not able to do a live show, uh, but back in Greenville now, where it was 100 degrees today, and it is the last Wednesday in May of 2019 as we put this out uh, 
on the air and into the archives to be downloaded at your leisure. 100 degrees in May. This is ridiculous. Uh, It's not the worst weather in the country, though. I hope you, wherever you are listening, weren't affected by any of the tornadoes sweeping across so much of the United States this week. Hopefully that uh, didn't affect any of our listeners. And hopefully the rain will stay away, bad weather will stay away this weekend as the ECU Pirates uh, start the NCAA baseball tournament rated in the top eight nationally, uh, or top ten, I guess they were seated tenth actually in the tournament. Still not bad, looking forward to it. Well, there was no live show last week because it was time for the annual This Hallowed Ground tour of Civil War sites. Uh, put out by the Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours Company, and I look forward to it every year, and this year has always had a great time. I want to say thanks to all the travelers, uh, everyone on the bus, for sharing your enthusiasm and knowledge and tolerance of uh, one another, and of me especially. Uh, A special shout-out goes to all the the plus-ones in the group, the people who come along with their spouse or partner who are often dubious on the first night whether they've got themselves into uh, a Civil War quagmire for the week ahead. Uh, Most of them seem to have a pretty good time. I will say I I make a, a real effort on these tours to address everybody on the bus. If you're someone who wants to go on the tour, if you're listening to the show, then you're someone who'd want to go on the tour, and you'll have a good time no matter what. Uh, you can ignore me or not. You're, you're still on the battlefield of Antietam or Manassas. So uh, what I say is not that important. But if you're coming along because you bought the trip as a birthday gift to someone or you're just being nice uh, and you think you don't are not fascinated by Civil War history, I feel it's my job to uh, convince you that, in fact, you, you actually are. And, uh, and we had some success with that. Uh, we had great questions and comments all week. Uh, the two ex-servicemen from England and Scotland who were on the trip uh, shared their uh, military experiences in contrast with what was happening on the battlefields. That was really interesting. Overall, just a, a great time. Lots of highlights. Uh, seeing Frank Beecham uh, of the 4th United States Infantry Regiment uh, reenacted at Manassas, talking with John Hennessy at Fredericksburg, uh, licensed battlefield guide Tim Smith at Gettysburg, Tim Talbot at Pamplin Park. These are all friends of the show, uh, people who've been on or been listening for a long time, and it was great to see them. Uh, I ran into listeners to the show at uh, Antietam and Fredericksburg. Uh, thank you for listening. I met an interesting potential guest at Appomattox. You'll you'll hear from him next year probably. <clears throat> Happy to, to learn that last uh, a recent guest, uh, Beth Parnitza, who was on the show uh, this past season, uh, who, who I met at Chancellorsville on this trip last year, has been promoted and is now the uh, director of education at Appomattox. She's a Park Service Ranger, uh, so that was good news. <clears throat> and uh, finally, note this year's stop on the way home when I drive home from Richmond at the end of the tour I try to see one more site on my own maybe for future use because after eight days of nothing but Civil War sites what would you expect me to do on the way home but go to another one this year it was Fort Harrison just outside of Richmond if you've never been to Fort Harrison wow those are some great earthworks Uh, I, I recommend it it's 
not a frequently visited site. It played a key role in the 1864 campaign uh, and had a nice chat with the ranger there. So uh, highly recommended. And uh, while talking about this, let me put a due word of credit in for the people who actually make the trip work. Uh, Matt Brogge of Austin Pay University is the tour manager. Hal Brooks is the bus driver. They do all the heavy lifting, literally, of luggage uh, while I just talk. And uh, uh, they they make make the trip work every year. So so full credit to them. I'm already looking forward to working with them on next year's tour. Before then, of course, we have shows coming up. Um, speaking of friends of the show, people who've been on before, uh, we all got uh, some shocking news. This I think it was just yesterday uh, that Tony Horowitz, author of Confederates in the Attic. A uh, friend of this show, he appeared uh, in February 2013 to talk about Midnight Rising, his book on John Brown. Uh, Tony unexpectedly passed away at the age of 60 this past week. Uh, uh, so condolences to his family. Uh, his, his wife is a Civil War author of renown as well, and, and just very sorry to, to hear about this. So coming up, no live show next week or the week after, I will be in Normandy, France, uh, for the 75th anniversary of the D-Day invasion. Uh, I will, in fact, be actually leading a tour uh, disguised as a World War II historian because there are so many tours going over that uh, all hands are being called on deck. If you're a historian of the Crusades or uh, the Industrial Revolution or, you know, really anything at all, you can lead a tour this year, apparently. So... I'll be back uh, with you on June 19th and uh, looking forward to doing a program there where I'll talk about the Civil War Institute, which you've heard about. The Civil War Institute is at Gettysburg College, and it's almost sold out, I understand. I think there are still a very few spots left. If you're interested, go to Gettysburg College's website, look for the CWI and uh, gettysburg.edu slash CWI. It's June 14th through 19th. Uh, check it out, and I'll be back with you here on the air on June 19th to talk about what happened at this year's institute and maybe uh, play some interviews with people I meet there. And we'll wrap up the academic year season on June 26th with Nina Silber. Her uh, book, appropriately titled This War Ain't Over, Fighting the Civil War in New Deal America. That's what we'll talk about as the season will be over. You can find out, as always, what's happening on the Impediments of War website or the Impediments of War Facebook page. You can donate to the show at the uh, impedimentsofwar.org page. There's a PayPal button. Check it out, and uh, we'll talk about uh, things as they come up later in the season. Well, a couple weeks ago, uh, Amy Taylor was on the show with her book, Embattled Freedom, about the uh, previously unexplored story of the slave refugee camps during the war, and her book is winning all the prizes this year. I will go out on a limb, and since I'm not a gambling person, I won't lose anything, but I'm going to predict that tonight's book is going to win some prizes next year. It's an extremely... Uh, an unexpectedly fascinating, creative look at an element we haven't studied much in the Civil War, the pheno- phenomenon of surrendering. The author is David Silkenat, and he's our guest tonight. David, are you there? 
I am here, Jerry. How can you, can you hear me? Yes, plenty loud. Chuck, uh, good, to good, that. good to be back on the show. Welcome back. Uh, it's been a while. You, uh, it just before you came on, I, I heard it was midnight where you are. Uh, yes. Where are you? I, I teach at the University of Edinburgh, so I'm in Scotland. Oh, okay. Well, so, that, yeah, I'm that five hours five hours or later than you are. So, well, I'd, I'll be in your time zone in a, a, a in a week, but uh, unfortunately, uh, not right now. So, thank you very much for uh, staying up late to do the show. It's much appreciated. Oh, it's my, my pleasure. Um, you're, we were just chatting by email, and I, I was telling the, our, our listeners about the visit to Civil War sites on the, the tour, This Hallowed Ground. We end the tour at Appomattox every year. And you mentioned to me that uh, you said your son found my business card. Well, no, my, my son, I think what the story we were out is must have been four years ago or, or okay. something about that. Uh, I was taking the family on a, a research trip that I was disguising as a family vacation, as one does. <laughs> exactly. Um, and we were going to, to Appomattox Courthouse. And we visited the National Park site and we uh, visited uh, the what was then the Museum of the Confederacy. It's now the American Civil War Museum branch at Appomattox, right. uh, which had just at that point, I think, just opened maybe a year earlier. Mm-hmm. And uh, we walked around the museum and saw the things and saw Lee's sword and what have you. And when we got back to uh, our house, we were living in Durham, North Carolina at the time. Um, uh, I was in my son's room telling him something, and I saw your business card there, and I said, well, where did you get this? And I said, oh, well, I talked to this very nice man at the museum. Um, so I, we were both there at the same time. I guess we just didn't see each other, but uh, I guess you had a conversation with my son. Uh, wow, and, and and immediately tried to recruit him as a listener by giving my business card. Sure, uh, to be sure. Uh, well, he's, he's, <laughs> he's starting a, a master's degree in history next year, so uh, one of us is doing something right. Wow, well, excellent. Congratulations on that. That's uh uh, that is good news to hear. And speaking of good news, your your previous books, uh, first one titled Moments of Despair, I believe is the title. Yes. Uh, and, and then you've written about refugees. This book is almost cheerful in comparison. You're just writing <laughs> about surrender. Um, uh, by comparison, yes. It's, yes. Uh, how, how did you come by this topic? Uh, well, it, the idea for it uh, really sprung from two very basic observations. Uh, and the first was simply that they surrendered very frequently during the Civil War. As you mentioned in, in the intro, the war begins with a surrender at Fort Sumter. It ends with these series of surrenders uh, at Appomattox Courthouse and at Bennett Place and, and a number of sites afterwards. And that many of the decisive moments of the war, Harper's Ferry, Vicksburg, um, what have you, end in surrender. Uh, and it just occurred to me that that was a lot, and and just trying to make sense of of what that meant that uh, this war featured so many surrenders, and obviously people had written about these individual events, but had not tried to put them together as a, a phenomenon. Uh, and the other idea that came to me very early on in the research of this book was that the Civil War generation saw surrender very differently than Americans in the 20th and 21st century do. Mm. Um, you know, really, ever uh, from World War II onwards, Americans have said, Americans never surrender. 
You see President Kennedy saying that, for instance, uh, during the Cuban Missile Crisis and that famous address on television where he says Americans will you know, pay any price and one price we will never pay is the price we will never surrender. And American politicians have said versions of that, all of them, uh, in the you know 50 years since then, whether they are Democrats or Republicans, Reagan said it, uh, Trump said it, uh, both the Bushes said it, Obama said it. Um, in fact, you'd be very hard-pressed to find anything those men agree on besides the fact that Americans never surrender. Um, but on the other hand, you know, 150 years ago, Americans surrendered all the time. Uh, and so I was, it was very clear from the beginning that the ways in which the Civil War generation saw surrender, the, the, the rubric they used for making sense of it was very, very different from um, that in which, the ways in which Americans understand surrender today. And so part of the task in, in, in writing the book is figuring out not only who surrendered and when and why, but how they understood it and what kind of tools they used to make sense of it. So uh, no retreat, baby, no surrender. That's our... Uh, exactly. I, I quoted Bruce Springsteen in the book, and, and that was maybe a bit of an indulgence on my part. But you know, if anybody can speak to American popular attitudes towards things, I'll, I'll, I'll give him credit for that. I think that's very reasonable. So we reject surrender as a legitimate option in the 20th and 21st century. But as you point out in the book, uh, both uh, Robert Anderson after Fort Sumter and Lee after Appomattox emerge with their reputations enhanced by their experience of surrender, not, not damaged. Exactly. Uh, in, and, in many ways, Anderson is the first big hero of the war. Uh, because of the way that he surrendered, because of his conduct, you know, before the battle, in the battle, and and at the end. And yet, that's not a universal uh, experience. There are some surrenders that, that don't go over so well. We're going to take our first break now and come back. And I want to ask that question: what what differentiated a good from a, a bad surrender during the Civil War? We're talking tonight with David Silkenet, author of Raising the White Flag, How Surrender Defined the American Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Have we got a high-energy, all-access sports show for you? It's Outside the Huddle, starring Lemond Williams. Each week, join Lemond as he takes callers, discusses the week's top stories in the world of sports, and sits down with active and former players to discuss their transition from sports to business. Outside the Huddle is a great resource for players making career transitions both on and off the field. Tune in Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central, and 5 Pacific. For Outside the Huddle on the Voice America Sports Channel. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with David Silkenat, author of Raising the White Flag, How Surrender Defined the American Civil War. The uh, As we noted in the first segment, you've got some very famous surrenders, uh, Anderson at Fort Sumter or Lee at Appomattox, which end up enhancing the reputations of those leaders, if anything. But there are also bad surrenders. What what made a surrender good or bad to the Civil War generation? Uh, well, so Anderson's uh, surrender at Fort Sumter really is the template for a, a good surrender. Um, you know, he is, the Confederates initially demand that he surrender. He refuses. They fire upon him. And then after 34 hours of bombardment, when he realizes that continuing the fight would only mean the loss of uh, the lives of his soldiers, then it was considered honorable to surrender. Um, and, you know, Anderson, after the surrender, he is greeted in New York. They, they, he and his garrison are allowed to travel to New York afterwards, and they are greeted as heroes. They have an enormous uh, sort of parade for him, and they give speeches, and he is lauded as being a, a great hero. Um, and that really is the standard for both armies, really, for the duration of the war. Um and I'll give you an example from the very end of the war to, to sort of illustrate this. Mm-hmm. Um, in in May of 1865, really the only big Confederate army left standing is Kirby Smith's army um, out in the Trans-Mississippi. And at that point, everybody else had surrendered. Lee had surrendered, and Johnston had sur- surrendered, and Taylor had surrendered, and Jefferson Davis had been captured. And the U.S. Army sends a courier out to Kirby Smith and asks him if he'd be willing to surrender under the same terms that that Lee had. And Kirby Smith says to the courier, no. And the courier's somewhat confused by this because he realizes the entire Union Army is now going to be descending upon him. Um, and, and Kirby Smith writes this very lengthy letter uh, to explain why he can't surrender. And he says, an officer can surrender his command only when he has resisted the utmost of his power. And he says, I haven't done that, and so I can't surrender yet. There are standards and rules about when one can honorably surrender, and we haven't met those yet. Um, essentially, he was saying, I can't surrender yet because you can't, haven't attacked me yet. Um, and so there really is a clear understanding on both armies uh, about how, uh, you know, when somebody can and can't surrender. There are a couple of uh, very well-known cases and some less well-known cases of people surrendering prematurely, surrendering before uh, that standard had been met. Um, uh, one of my favorites uh, is when David Twiggs surrenders, uh, which is not a very well-known surrender, but it was a very important surrender at the time. Uh, and that actually happens before Fort Sumter. Uh, David Twiggs commanded the d- uh, Department of Texas, uh, and he had a headquarters in San Antonio, actually at the, at the Alamo. Uh, and he gets surrounded by pro-Confederate forces and surrenders 
uh, his command, which at that point was a significant portion of the U.S. Army, uh, something like 15% of the entire U.S. Army, without firing a shot. And he is labeled as a traitor, as a coward, as a uh, – uh, he's labeled as sort of the, the new Benedict Arnold uh, for surrendering without fighting man in a you know, manly, uh, officerly kind of way. Another you know, well-known example of this is the surrender of Harper's Ferry in 1862 as part of the uh, Maryland campaign, uh, where Dixon Miles surrenders his fort, or surrenders his garrison, um, really after the fighting, fighting only barely begun, and uh, that ends up being the largest Union surrender of the Civil War. Uh, Miles actually dies. He surrenders and then dies immediately thereafter. He gets hit by a uh, artillery shell, basically as the white flags are going up, signaling that the the fighting should stop. Uh, and so he doesn't get the public criticism that he would have if he had lived. But there's a very there's a huge congressional investigation, and he is blamed for surrendering when he shouldn't have for you know raising the white flag when he should have at least tried to fight uh, longer against Stonewall Jackson. Now, I was just in Harper's Ferry last week with our, our tour group and marveling at what a completely indefensible position that is, especially once you yield the Bolivar Heights to, oh, to Jackson's sure. men. Uh, so I, I wonder if Miles, I mean, in a sense, he, he did fulfill the the requirement to fight until there's no possible chance of victory, although that was a very short time because he was so incompetent in the way he defended the place. Well, he was, yeah, he did a bad job there. He also appears to have been pretty intoxicated the entire time. <laughs> um, he, he was not a, you know, he's one of these guys who was a, in the old army and, and his major accomplishment in the old army was not getting kicked out of the old army for, um, <laughs> for really just not being very good at his job. Um, but many of the soldiers who were fighting, uh, who were in that garrison, had never didn't, never got a chance to fire their weapons. And some of them, in fact, were brand new recruits who literally never got to fire their weapons, like the weapons had, had never been fired when they surrendered. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, many of Dixon Miles' subordinates felt that he was surrendering prematurely. And in fact, when mm-hmm. he dies in this sort of weird uh, Incident, you know, right as right as he's ordering the surrender, there are people who try to undo it and try to um, call back the orders, but that that doesn't does doesn't go to go anywhere. Um, no, one of the but that you know those times ahead. where people are surrendering prematurely are really kind of the exception. Mm-hmm. Uh, most other surrenders, people are um, you know not criticized for surrendering their army. They're in fact often like like Anderson or like Lee. You know, praised for not sacrificing the lives of their men unnecessarily. It's seen as a way of, you know, stopping unnecessary bloodshed. Mm-hmm. The uh, one of the things that really fascinated me about this book was that you look not only at the you surrender of armies uh, at Harper's Ferry, at, at Vicksburg, Appomattox, Fort Donaldson, and so on, but you point out there's a second element of surrender that happens in every battle when individuals. Uh, even belonging to the army that might end up winning the battle, at some tactical moment find themselves in a position where uh, to fight on is is almost certain death, and there's no percentage in it. They've fought bravely, so so they surrender. Uh, this you point out. This is one of the only times when a soldier, an enlisted man, 
has a free will, has agency, uh, can makes that decision that the soldiers don't decide when to open fire, when to, where to march, what to eat. All these things are decided for them, but they can decide at a certain point to throw down their weapons and, and surrender. Well, and and two people have to make that decision, right? So one person yes. has to throw down their weapon, and somebody else, the enemy, has to agree to accept that surrender. And so it's a really interesting sort of process. You know, if you think about these mm-hmm. big surrenders, generals are thinking about, you know, should I surrender, should I not? These other decisions that soldiers are making on the battlefield, you know, they're happening in a moment. You know, you know it's, there's there's not a whole lot of time for reflection. Um but it is something that they're thinking about between battles, and and it's a choice that they're making. Um, sometimes a almost unthinking choice, you know, when the battles are going on. So, was the acceptance of surrender uh, a, a given in in warfare generally, internationally, in the nineteenth century? Um, I, I th- not not to the extent that it was in the American Civil War. I think that both the the frequency of surrender. Um, and the, the surrenders being accepted by the enemy, especially these sort of battlefield surrenders, mm-hmm. um, was much more common in the Civil War than in other conflicts. Uh, and there's lots of reasons for this. Um, you know, there's sort of the obvious thing that the soldiers recognize themselves and the enemy to some degree. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also one of the things that really influences soldiers' willingness to surrender during the Civil War, especially during certain windows of, of the conflict, is that they expect that, that once they surrender, their experience after surrender will be fair, they'll be treated as prisoners of war, and um, they will be fairly quickly both paroled from prison and then exchanged and allowed to go back and fight with their regiments. Um, and, you know, when people think of, of what life uh, as a prisoner of war in, this, in, in the American Civil War, what they often think of is they think of Andersonville, mm-hmm. they think of these prisons late in the war, which are sort of death traps. And that's not the experience for most soldiers for most of the war. Um, you know, if you read accounts of Civil War prisons in 1861 and 1862, they're not pleasant places, but they're not Andersonville. You know, these are places that have reasonable shelter for the uh, for the inmates. They have, you know, lending libraries, and they have lecture series, and they've got choirs, and some of them have newspapers. I mean, they're pretty unpleasant places, but they're not uh, death traps. Uh, and one of the things that happens in 1862 that, that really makes surrender on the battlefield look like a very good option is the Union and the Confederacy agree to a prisoner exchange regime called the Dix Hill Cartel, which makes prison life extraordinarily brief. Prisoners are paroled after are usually less than 10 days, at least the requirements say 10 days, uh, in prison. And then they're exchanged for an equal number of prisoners on the other side, which means you can surrender, be a prisoner briefly, and then be released and be allowed to go fight with your regiment in a couple of weeks. And then we have number, a number of cases uh, from 1862 and 1863 of soldiers doing this, of actually surrendering on multiple occasions. Um, and that really sort of speaks to how efficient this cartel was. And so if the choice is between fighting and dying in a hopeless situation where you're surrounded or your weapon has malfunctioned or what have you. Uh, 
and, and surrender. You know, if that choice between death in those circumstances and surrendering, soldiers are making the choice to surrender. Now, you mentioned parole several times, and this has fascinated me for for years. The phenomenon. You're, you're in the footnotes there. Um, I, I saw I, that. You saw my article. Um, the the uh, the Army of the Ohio eventually had uh, Don Carlos Buell ordered an end to paroles mm-hmm. in August 1862 after the Battle of Richmond when virtually the entire Union force of some 8,000 men surrendered uh, and expected to be paroled and immediately allowed to go. So when you're paroled, you, you, you go back to your own side and then you're held as a prisoner by your own team, as it were. Uh, well, uh, early in the war, there's uh, and for the early part of the Dixville Cartel, a lot of these guys mm-hmm. actually go home. Um, and it's not until some people complain that it's hard to get them back into the regiment once they've gone home, once they've been mm-hmm. exchanged. Um, but the concern that maybe the people are surrendering so they can go home and have a good meal. Mm-hmm. Um, so they do establish these parole camps um, where people who are paroled are held until they've been officially exchanged. Um, probably um, the, many of the soldiers, most of the soldiers who surrendered at, at Harper's Ferry uh, that I mentioned earlier, they get held at uh, – uh, at Camp Douglas in Chicago uh, yeah, until their exchange. I mean, that's just really hard for a 21st century reader to grasp the idea that you you give your word not to fight and you keep your word and your yeah. own side expects you to keep your word and indeed they will prevent you from fighting by imprisoning you on your own side of the line because if they let you go home, as you say, uh, it's an honorable way to go home without having to lose a limb first. Uh, and really the only honorable way to go home without getting wounded or, or yeah. killed. And, so, and only the Union has these parole camps. The Confederacy just basically mm-hmm. lets their soldiers go home. And and it does seem very foreign to modern ears to say we're going to let enemy prisoners return, you know, leave prison on the promise they're not going to fight again. But these were you know pledges that the soldiers took extraordinarily seriously, that the, the governments took seriously, um, yeah, the guys who uh, were paroled uh, from after after Harper's Ferry, they they're put in uh, in this parole camp. And at one point, mm-hmm. the, the U.S. government says, "Well, we're fighting a war against Native Americans uh, in Minnesota. We can send you to fight there." And they the soldiers said, "No, we said, we pledged on our honor, no fighting, soldiering of any kind. Soldiering against Native Americans is still soldiering. We're not doing it." Mm-hmm. Uh, and the U.S. eventually. You know, back down on that. Um, so it is a very for you know we can't imagine people being let go from Guantanamo Bay, promising not to be a terrorist again. Um, and obviously, it's a very different kind of world we're living in today than they lived in 150 years ago. But that you know, this idea that one has rules about when one should and shouldn't fight. Uh, now, the, the, there was an incentive though to follow the rules, which is if you are recaptured after having given your parole. And you haven't been exchanged legally. Yeah. Now you're liable to a battlefield execution. Yes. Uh, and and relatively few of those happen. Mm-hmm. Um, there's uh, you know which I think speaks to the, the ways in which both the people upheld these paroles. There were some circumstances. There were some soldiers who surrendered at, at were surrendered at uh, Vicksburg, mm-hmm. and the Confederates told them they had been exchanged, and. It, Turns out maybe they were, maybe they weren't. Uh, you know, there was some debate about whether they'd been properly exchanged or not. They end up getting captured, uh, surrendering again a few months later after they believe they've been exchanged. And when they find out that they hadn't been, they've been fighting ostensibly illegally. 
they were horrified at their own conduct and they're horrified at their own government for deceiving them into fighting again when they when they believe they shouldn't be. Uh, so these were things were taken very, very seriously. And I think that also speaks then to, you know, the Confederate paroles at the end of the war. You know, many of those people mm-hmm. who received those paroles at Appomattox Courthouse and, and, and Greensboro and other places, that was not the first parole they had received in the war. This was the, you know, second or third or fourth time some of them had been paroled. And so, you know, that was an experience that when, when people say, here's your parole, they say, yes, I know how this works, right? This is a, not a novel experience. Now, the the parole system breaks down, and, and there are many reasons for that, especially the enlistment of African Americans, but uh, Grant makes the point also that as long as you maintain this sort of catch-and-release program, mm-hmm. the only way to actually make a Confederate stop fighting permanently is to kill him, and therefore you're going if you don't hold them in Elmira or Camp Douglas or, or somewhere in the north, then they're going to die sooner or later. So it's actually more merciful not to exchange them than to keep letting them go back and take their chances. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, the the system did break down both because both sides accused the other of cheating on the system, but especially mm-hmm. because of the introduction of black soldiers when Confederates said they're not going to treat African-American soldiers as legitimate prisoners of war. Uh, we all know that story very well of, mm-hmm. of the ways which, which Confederates didn't treat African-American soldiers as legitimate soldiers. You know, that's the sort of the, the really the, the critical moment that the system broke down. But I think Grant understood that, you know, reopening the system would ultimately benefit uh, Confederates more than it would the Union. Well, mentioning Grant brings us to, of course, his famous nickname, U.S. Grant, Unconditional Surrender Grant. We're going to take another short break in a minute, but I want to come back and ask you about uh, how Grant fits into this picture and how the notion of unconditional surrender either fits or doesn't fit with the, the notion of what uh, what a civil war surrendering army ought to do. So we'll ask that question of our guest tonight, David Silkenat, when we come back in just a moment. We're talking about his book, Raising the White Flag, How Surrender Defined the American Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. 
stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast all the time the number one internet talk station where your opinion counts voiceamerica.com you are listening to civil war talk radio if you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with David Silkenat, author of Raising the White Flag, How Surrender Defined the American Civil War. It is a fascinating book, one that I will say when I, has an attractive cover, well produced by University of North Carolina Press, as most of their books are. And uh, yet I thought upon setting out to read it, this seems kind of an esoteric topic, kind of a reach here. Is there really a story here? And was I wrong? <laughs> there really is a story. Uh, you know, the contrast between armies surrendering and individuals, the different conventions that apply to them, uh, the meaning, the heroism or cowardice that attach to different modes of surrender, uh, and, and the, the ubiquity of surrender throughout the war. How many times individuals did this, either on their own or as parts of armies, uh, it shows that this is a, a major component of the military experience. Uh, at Gettysburg, for example, you, uh, David, you note that there were some 5,000, uh, uh, 4,700 Confederates were killed at Gettysburg, but 5,800 are missing, and over 5,000 U.S. soldiers are missing as well. And while some of the missing are, are, are killed and never found, a, a large mm. majority of those are captured. Yeah. Uh, and that's more true of most Civil War battles, right? Um, yeah. So, so it happens all the time. Oh, and and you know, so you know, we think of you know Gettysburg as the you know bloodiest battle of the war, and we think of the American Civil War as the the bloodiest you know war in in American history. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's with good reason. It is an extraordinarily you know uh, gruesome conflict, and you know, of course, I think most of the listeners in the show know that the. You know, the old figure is something on the order of, of 620,000 people killed, and the new figure is something closer to three-quarters of a million people. Mm-hmm. But approximately the same number of people surrendered in the Civil War. Uh, and to me, you know, why that matters is you can imagine a war in which people are surrendering far less, where people don't have the option to surrender on the battlefield, where people at Gettysburg who surrendered, and people are surrendering from the beginning of that battle until the very end, throughout Lee's retreat, the whole thing. Um, there isn't a moment in that battle where people aren't throwing down their weapons and raising their arms and, and asking for surrender. What would those battles have looked like had people not been given the choice to surrender? If it had been a war in which soldiers were told not to surrender um, or were not felt they were able to, you know, what would it ha- what would have it happened if at Vicksburg Grant had been forced to actually assault the city? How many mm-hmm. Confederate soldiers would have died? How many Union soldiers would have died? What would have happened at Appomattox Courthouse if Lee had been forced to really engage his entire army there and fight a massive pitched battle instead of you know, a, very, a relatively small battle and then eventually surrendering? Uh, we, you know, the death toll would have been in a whole order of magnitude more than it was, and it's already pretty you know, uh, hard to 
wrap your brain around how many people died in this war, how many people were wounded in this war, but it could have been that much worse. Well, we can actually see hints of that uh, in 1864, mm-hmm. when you do have battles where quarter is not granted. I'm thinking of Fort Pillow, uh, thinking of the crater, places where you have uh, the United States colored troops fighting and Confederates refusing to accept their surrender. And in turn, uh, at subsequent battles, the black troops going to, to battle, shouting, remember Fort Pillow, yeah. with no intention of accepting any Confederate surrenders. So we do see that happen. Yeah, we do see that happen. There are certain categories of soldiers who, who, for whom surrender isn't the option that it is for the vast majority of soldiers. And African Americans are one of those categories, you know, because you know the Confederate policy officially is that um, African Americans in uniforms will be treated like runaway slaves and returned to bondage instead of um, treated as prisoners of war. Uh, we know in practice that the you know, if the real policy was often to execute uh, captured African-American soldiers, and we have many examples of, of, of that. Uh, and so black soldiers knew they couldn't surrender. And in fact, they say that you know, one of the things that defines us as a fighting group is that we don't surrender. Uh, and they often say if the enemy is not going to accept our surrender or not going to keep, give us the benefits that are afforded to soldiers, we're not going to afford them the benefits of surrender. And if you look at the kinds of fighting that happens, especially at places like the crater, it is extraordinarily gruesome. I mean, it's, you know, the, there's hand-to-hand combat and, and bayonets and other kinds of fighting that looks very different than other Civil War battlefields because soldiers don't have that option of surrendering. Now, the other two groups I found mm-hmm. that really can't surrender are mm-hmm. guerrillas, Mm-hmm. Because guerrillas are, are especially after the Libra Code, are, are classified as not being legitimate soldiers, but as being basically outlaws. Uh, and they feel they can't surrender because they know they're going to be probably executed if they're captured. Uh, and the final group are, are Southern Unionists, um, mm-hmm. who Confederates determine um, are basically desert- they claim they're deserters from the Confederate Army, and sometimes they are, and sometimes they're not. But they don't have the option to surrender either. Uh, and, and that really does affect the ways in which the kind of choices they make on the battlefield. Um, now, you, uh, talking about surrender and, and the terms that the, the loser gets, uh, I wanted to bring up U.S. Grant and, and the unconditional mm-hmm. surrender notion. Uh, how, how does Grant fit into this story? That seems to, to break the mold to some extent. Well, Grant's an interesting case, and he's, I think he's often misunderstood. Uh, mm-hmm. During during the end of the Second World War, I know you're about to go off to, to Normandy. Uh, right. FD, FDR was trying to explain how he wanted the end the war, war to end to uh, to the American Allies. At the end, and he told a story about U.S. Grant, and they called him unconditional surrender Grant, and we need to demand the unconditional surrender of of Germany and Japan. Uh, and it turns out, I think FDR's understanding of of Grant's entirely wrong. Uh, Grant, of course, is, participates in, in three of the most important surrenders of the war uh, at Fort Donelson, at Vicksburg, and then at Appomattox Courthouse. But only in the first of those does he demand unconditional surrender. And he does that, I think, for a very specific reason. The Confederate garrison there is, is on a river, um, and the much of the garrison was escaping across the river through the uh, later parges of the siege. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. And what he was worried about was that basically the longer that it took for the Confederates to surrender, the more soldiers um, and officers, for that matter, would escape. And what he didn't want to have happen is have him take the fort, have it surrender with, you know, 12 guys in it. He wanted huh. to actually take the fort with some people in it. So that's the one case where he demands unconditional surrender. If you look at the other two surrenders, though, if you look at Vicksburg and at Appomattox Courthouse, he engages in active negotiations with the Confederates. You know, they they talk about terms, they go back and forth, um, you know, and so those are negotiated surrenders like most surrenders are in the Civil War, where, where people do think about what terms they're willing to accept and, and, and have some... Um, you know, the person surrendering has some agency there to, to say what under what circumstances they're willing to surrender. Uh, and so in some ways, I think Grant gets this, I think this is part of a, a broader, I don't want to say smear campaign, but I think it's probably the best way to think about it. You know, the, this campaign against Grant that makes Grant out to be a butcher, and I think the lost cause has, has done a great deal to, to minimize Grant's uh, abilities as a general. Um, you know, uh, but one of the things I think Grant believed, and I think one of the ways in which Grant thinks about surrender is surrenders a way to avoid taking unnecessary lives. You know, if you look at at, at both at, at Fort Donaldson and at Vicksburg and, and at, at Appomattox Courthouse, he could have waged battle in in each of those places and destroyed the Confederate forces. Because he had numerical superiority and, and advantages of the landscape and other things, but he saw that there was a, an alternative to fight, and that the alternative to fighting was often, usually, the better alternative, um, and that you know we should think of him not as a you know somebody who demands unconditional surrender as a kind of a bullying tactic, um, but somebody who really wanted to find ways to not shed blood unnecessarily. The uh, the point about the lost cause brings up your discussion of, of the memory of surrender. Mm. Uh, again, I was just with my uh, uh, touring companions at Appomattox Courthouse last week, and the Park Service maintains a, a beautiful and, uh, like most national park battlefields, a, a serene and uh, appealing place. It doesn't have a lot of monuments or a lot of cannon. It, it's the surrender site. It's just a little village, a sort of uh, yeah. uh, reconstructed 19th century village. And yet it's it's unusual in that you have this, this memorialization of a surrender. Uh, how, how, how did Americans get from, from surrendering in large numbers to where we are today, where surrender is is not what Americans do, uh, how do we reconcile? How do we remember heroic Lee and Grant in in that context? Yeah, well, I think one of the things that these surrender sites tell us is is they tell us about how much Americans in the 150 years since uh, the the Civil War have had difficulty figuring out what to do with surrender, and hmm. I think the sort of the absence of monuments um, at Appomattox Courthouse is a is a is a good example of that. There's a there's a plaque that the, the UDC put up. There's a monument to North Carolina that's in the woods. That you mm-hmm. got to sort of hunt out if you want to see it. But it doesn't have the kind of monumental landscape that that battlefields have. Uh, the same is true at, at Bennett Place. That the 
big surrender uh, a few weeks later uh, in in North Carolina. There is mm-hmm. a monument there, but it's kind of a weird monument. It's a it has two columns representing the North and the South, and it has a a, a lintel on the top that says Unity. And if you look at the the, the ways in which these sites have developed, they there were people who didn't want monuments there. There were discussions about putting monuments up at Appomattox Courthouse, and lots of people opposed them. They said, we don't, especially um, people associated with the lost cause, they said, we don't want any monuments here to commemorate this event. Um, and at Bennett Place, there was a fight between actually different segments of, of, of lost cause commemoration about whether they should have a monument there. Uh, and these are in sites that are not very heavily visited by comparison to other Civil War sites. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you go to, I, I was at the anniversary at both Appomattox Courthouse and at Bennett Place, um, and a few people showed up, but it was not like the anniversaries that you have at, you know, at, at an Antietam or Gettysburg, where you have tens of thousands of people come. It's mm-hmm. dozens and hundreds at the most. Um and I think that speaks to the fact that Americans aren't quite sure what to do with these sites and what meaning to attach to them and, and how to think about uh, what surrender meant and what what legacy that has uh, for us today. So, well, this, this book, uh, as I've said a couple times tonight, really impressed me. I found it... Uh, a- it was great to read while uh, touring the sites on, on the way to Appomattox to read your account of Appomattox or uh, your description of soldiers surrendering at Pickett's Charge, not just Confederate soldiers, but um, you know at the fight at the angle. Yeah, isn't, isn't that so, remarkable? You've got Union soldiers at Pickett's Charge, you know, at the top of the hill who are surrendering and then have to march downhill with their Confederate <laughs> captors, which is not the story that we tell when we you know give tours of the site. We 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 talk about the heroic charge up the hill and the, mm-hmm. the people who die, but but far more people surrendered on both sides of that little stone wall than. Uh, no, I, I had people were asking. I, I was asked a question about that. Like, what did the you know, how many were captured and what did the Confederates do? And I was able to cite your description of the Confederates going up Cemetery Ridge and some of them realizing this is this isn't working, and maybe they're wounded or maybe they just just become realistic and they, they lie down and after the tide recedes and they fall back to the Confederate lines, all these people in Cemetery Ridge stand up if they're able to mm-hmm. and walk into the Union lines as prisoners. Uh Meanwhile, other, as you say, other Union prisoners have been taken at the top of the ridge and brought back. Uh, just, just a remarkably different way of looking at these battles. Um, so, listeners, you you do not want to miss reading "Raising the White Flag: How Surrender Defined the American Civil War." Um, in in fifteen seconds, David, do you have another project underway? Uh, I'm currently writing an environmental history of slavery. Um, ah. so it's it's a it's a different kind of book, but it covers, you know, 200 years of American slavery and the ways in which slavery is shaped by the environment and ways in which the environment is uh, reshaped by, by uh, slave labor. Uh, and it ends with emancipation and the ways in which emancipation is, is shaped by uh, the environment. So uh, there is a civil war element to it, but it's a, a different kind of project. Well, it sounds imaginative and interesting. Certainly environmental history is one of the current cresting waves in Civil War study, one we're going to get a lot of new information out of. But this book, uh, listeners, I cannot recommend highly enough, Raising the White Flag, How Surrender Defined the American Civil War, by our guest, David Silkenat. David, thanks for oh. staying up late and being on the show. 
Well, thank you very much for having me. It was, it was a lot of fun. And listeners, as always, thanks for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Mm